Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and it's a pleasure to have with me today a former colleague and a good friend, Jeff Sontry. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Nabil. How's it going? Going fantastic. Jeff is the CEO and founder of Risk Neutral, a leading provider of integrated risk management solutions. As part of executive leadership teams, Jeff has led professional services and engineering organizations at multiple publicly traded Fortune 500 companies. His operational and technical experience spans technology, enterprise software, risk, compliance, fraud, cyber, and physical security domains. Jeff is a serial entrepreneur who has founded four private companies in his home state of Florida. Jeff is on the executive committee of the Tampa Bay chapter of Professional Directors Association. Jeff is a member of the National Association of Corporate Directors and is recognized as a leader fellow in cybersecurity and certified director. He recently completed the chief risk officer program at Carnegie Mellon University to complement his numerous professional technical cybersecurity certifications. His environment, social, and governance passions are focused on preserving the world's oceans as both a U.S. Coast Guard certified captain in the U.S. Merchant Marine, he's a Master 50 GT, and 20 years of active participation with Professional Association of Dive Instructors, holding a current rating of Master Scuba Diver Trainer. As a licensed Florida Unlimited electrical contractor and qualifier, an active member of Communications, Information Sharing, and Analysis Center, Jeff brings an informed and balanced perspective to private public communication infrastructure, video surveillance, data privacy, cybersecurity, environmental and sustainability governance issues. That's a lot of things, and Jeff does a lot more than, uh, than I can do justice in a quick intro. But Jeff, let's start by talking about risk management. You know, how did you make that transformation from being a cybersecurity professional to delivering risk management solutions? Awesome. Thanks to Bill. Uh, thanks again for having me. So I think for me, it was just probably a natural evolution, kind of upskilling my vocabulary as I started interacting with more senior business leaders and uh, board members. You know, I think when the board members and the C-suite, you know, have normal discussions, they're discussing challenges and opportunities, but they're speaking more in terms of risk, cost, and outcomes versus, you know, in cybersecurity, we're often discussing, you know, threats and consequences. And I just, I thought something was getting lost in the translation there. So I just decided, hey, let me just build on my strong tech technical and cyber background and, and let me upskill a little bit and, and really kind of dig into risk management for, you know, the ability to make me a more effective communicator and more valuable to the clients I serve. So what would you say are some of the key elements that make someone do risk management really well? What are the key things that they have to possess and be thinking about regularly? You know, it's interesting because, you know, my whole career has had risk management components to it, but I really just did not understand risk as an empirical domain. And so that's one of the reasons I chose to, you know, make this pivot, but then also to make the investment of time and, and resources to go to Carnegie Mellon and get my chief risk officer certification. Um, and what was, what was great about it is I went from just being very myopic, maybe talking about technology risk or operational or compliance risk, and really kind of opening my eyes that, you know, there's five major risk categories that every business has to worry about. Strategic risk, which is by far the most important. If you don't get that one right, almost nothing else matters. Then operational, finance, compliance, and then ultimately, if any of those four fail, 
you have to start worrying about things like reputational risk. So tell me this. It's something that I've been contemplating and avoiding is going back to school to pursue more education. Tell me about that experience at Carnegie Mellon and especially in this risk officer space. It was awesome. I really, there's there's not that many programs out there. Uh, Carnegie Mellon, obviously, most of us in cybersecurity are very familiar with some of the great work they've done with like the maturity model, the CMMI, the insider threat program. And they've been a great partner with the government in terms of coming up with some of these like funded programs that we've been able to take advantage of from a cybersecurity program. So I felt like I was familiar with the quality of the Carnegie Mellon products and, and what kind of insights. But I was like, man, I really think I know a lot about risk. But there's, when I read the curriculum, I'm like, man, this is going to be really awesome. But the one thing I wanted to avoid, even though I had a lot of experience in it, is I didn't want it to be completely fintechs. So I think for a lot of people, fintech and financial services firms really kind of led the way in terms of, you know, chief risk officers and managing risk from a quantifiable perspective. But I knew that the domain was much bigger, but I needed to be a better rounded risk professional. So I felt having a very broad group of peers in the organization, in the in the cohort really helped me. But then just the caliber of instructors that they bought in and talking about the different ways to look at risk. So it's a half year program, essentially. I fortunately was the last cohort to do in-person as well as remote sessions, but uh, it just made me a much better rounded risk professional. So now I can truly talk about enterprise risk management programs and not have such a myopic view around, you know, cybersecurity or technology or compliance related risk. So do you think the way organizations approach cybersecurity risk today needs to evolve somehow? Oh, 100%. I mean, it's one of those things where you're kind of embarrassed because you've been part of the problem for so long. You kind of have to, you know, take the honest look in the mirror like, oh, you know, now I look back at some of the conversations I have and, you know, they're almost cringeworthy. But having all the knowledge I have gained in the last two years about risk management, I wish I could go back and have certain conversations with certain clients. I just wasn't mature enough to have at the time. But I think that reflects how far I have grown professionally in my knowledge of risk management that I can now think about, hey, how would I handle this very similar conversation with the decision maker if it was around the same topics now. So yeah, I think a big part of that is the cybersecurity profession in general, I think is very tech skills heavy. I think that's just naturally how a lot of us come up through through our profession. But I know that you've said this on multiple podcasts, that it's, it's probably even more important that if you can't explain the outcome of your results or your findings, it's not going to resonate with clients. So it's as if you never did them if you can't get the, the message and the impact across. So that's where I think the risk management professional and evolving for cybersecurity professionals is really improving those soft skills that, so that you're seen as more of a, a seat at the table than just someone coming in to tell them that the sky's falling. Isn't it amazing how much we grow and evolve, even if you look at the last couple of years or five years, right? The conversations we were having back then with clients has definitely changed. And, you know, you and I had the privilege of working together as peers for a while. And the types of conversations I had with customers then versus now, it's definitely very different. It kind of takes me back to when I first started learning about secure code review and pen testing, I went and looked at some of my source code I wrote back in college and, and high school. And they were riddled with so many vulnerabilities. I was embarrassed <laughs> to even think about it. Right. Same way now, I, I go back to thinking, hey, the conversations I had with customers around cyber risk really needed to you know, evolve. And, and the conversations I'm having today are at a completely different level as well. So it also shows you that the space is evolving and the professionals and all of us in the industry are having to evolve with it to, to stay current. And I don't, I wouldn't necessarily fault us for what we said maybe when we were a little younger and uh, when I had a little more hair, but it's definitely <laughs> nice to see that evolution. And I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more from your experience over time on, on how that's evolved. 
Yeah, I think if you look at like the financial services firms have had chief risk officers for a long time, but even in some of the more recent write-ups from outsiders like Harvard Business Review, they've looked at that and said, hey, the chief risk officer has to be a true peer to the rest of the C-suite. They should probably even have a solid line into the board of directors and that most companies should think about having a dedicated risk management committee at the management level that's complemented by one at the board level so that it gets the right amount of time and attention and you have people with the right skill set in the room having the right discussions. And that's just an evolution. But one of the important things that came out of the evolution from financial services is that they found structurally, if you embed the risk managers in with the business units, just there to please their boss and rubber stamp high risk decisions. And this is part of what got us into the problem of the, the big financial meltdown in 2008, 2009. But it should have really been a canary in the coal mine moment for risk management as a profession to say, hey, you have to be very careful about allowing the chief risk officer to be independent, to have the right reporting structures. You shouldn't just have them be you know, fired by a CEO on the whim because they raised their hand and said, hey, I think this is a little too risky for us. So I think the evolution of the chief risk officer, the chief risk officer program, I think um, is, is really at a very exciting point in time right now as we enter 2021. So let's talk a little bit about the board service and, and especially the advisory board work. I know you're doing some, I've just recently started doing some. Give me your thoughts and, and how that experience has been on being part of advisory board. And why do you think it's important to have more cybersecurity professionals and risk professionals in these advisory boards? Yeah, so my first advisory board was with a publicly traded company called Irvine Sensors out of California. And they did stuff with uh, technologies like LIDAR and other things that were typically used in Homeland Security or DOD applications. And they wanted to figure out ways to have some commercial applications. But I just found the whole process to be fascinating where they took my practical experience and allowed me just to focus on doing those mapping strategies to commercial applications. But we really had the ability to influence the strategy of the company. And I just found the whole process to be very fascinating. But the one thing I walked away with was, hey, when I took on the role, I didn't really know how to do it. And so I was like, mm, this has got to be a lot like every evolution in your life that there's probably a new vocabulary. There's a new skill set that you have to learn to be really effective at this. So, you know, as I consider that there's going to be more board service in my future, I really took a step back and said, okay, Jeff, if you're going to do this more frequently, then you need to figure out what's really involved and get better at it. And so I started looking at a couple of professional organizations to help upskill myself and really understand what it took to be a professional board director. Any advice you would have for others who are looking to get into advisory boards and, and, and work in that capacity? Yeah, so I'm probably going to publish something here pretty soon that's kind of like State of the Union for board education. And really, for me, it's kind of a capstone of what I've learned over the last three years that, you know, board service is a journey and everyone kind of starts at a different place and might have a different destination. So you really need to be very pragmatic, just like you would plan, you know, your secondary education and your master's degree and your career. From a board, you know, journey perspective, it's, it's very much the same thing where you should probably go cut your teeth with some stuff like maybe serving on a nonprofit board or something you really care about to understand what are the procedures. What are the roles that are played? What are the different committees? And then as you decide, hey, maybe I want to pursue service on a private board or a public board, what are those additional skill sets that I need related to like my fiduciary responsibilities and insurance? And what are some of the liabilities for me personally and professionally that I need to be worried about? So go ahead and just like you did with your post-secondary education, set a game plan for yourself, make some investments of time and money and really figure out what it takes to be a board professional. I think it's very worthwhile, but probably more importantly, I think that people with a strong technical and cybersecurity background definitely have something to contribute from a cognitive diversity perspective to boards as they face, you know, digital transformations and, and threats from a wider range of actors every year. Awesome. 
I, I want to kind of take you back a little bit to before we worked together uh, at one of your previous organizations, you were heavily involved in the compliance space, especially around PCI. And I know you and I have been exchanging emails recently around some of the new PCI SDLC guidelines. Can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe start off at a higher level around, you know, compliance and and especially different standards like PCI and why they're so relevant. And then would love to get some feedback from you on some of the key changes that PCI has made recently. Yeah, sure. So I, I think what was interesting is my whole career I've, I've been in IT. So I started out uh, as systems administrator at two big three accounting firms, basically in Washington, D.C. I started out at KPMG and went to PwC. And even when I was early in my career, I was running the technology steering committee. And I remember the partners that were there were really reinforcing how important it was that we remain compliant with our contract obligations as well as our regulatory, because very important to the brand of, of both organizations. And so that just really stuck with me. And each one of the three practice areas, audit, tax, and consulting services had their own you know, set of requirements, their own professional standards they had to adhere to. But uh, it was just very, very fascinating to me to understand that, hey, there were some guardrails that were going to be set for me by these regulatory bodies. And the better I understood them, probably the better off uh, I would be in terms of not you know, crossing over them. But I think PCI was interesting because it first came out in 2004. Actually, the merchants were some of the people that started pushing back saying, hey, uh, you guys are driving us crazy uh, card services and banks with all these different regulations. Can you guys just come up with one that I have to, you know, adhere to, and then I'll be happy to do it. But then also give me some time as you change it from an evolution perspective. So what was interesting is to see how different companies reacted to it. Some people just created this brand new uh, place where they put all the PCI assets, but didn't really give much, you know, thought in terms of what they put in there. Others are like, oh, I don't think this applies to me. I'll wait until someone comes and hits me on the knuckles with the, you know, with a ruler to tell me to do something. But it's just very interesting to have all these large uh, top tier merchants approach things slightly differently. But probably in two. 2009, 2010, um, I got involved with three really large uh, B2C clients that were tier one merchants, subject to the most stringent standards across PCI. But probably most importantly, they went from being self-assessed entities to being externally assessed entities by a QSA. And that really caused that visibility to raise to the board level that none of them wanted to be the first cash only you know, leader in their particular industry. So in, in, in that vein, there's a lot of transformation happening in the payment space today, especially with uh, different forms of mobile wallets and mobile payments systems and so on and so forth. Any thoughts or perspective on how PCI is keeping up or how well PCI is keeping up with new development practices, new types of software and hardware systems? And is there anything that we need to be more cognizant about going forward around the payment industry? Yeah, I, I think that uh, the PCI Council does a great job of just their their process of coming up with new guidelines. So in particular, you mentioned like the SDLC guidelines where, you know, they basically have said in the past, hey, it's really important to do things like penetration tests or applications that are handling credit card data, make sure the environments are set up correctly, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, the new PCI SLC has major sections. And so what's interesting is probably of the roughly seven parts of it, like three of them are really things that the organization has to demonstrate that they're capable of like, hey, we've designated a leader to be responsible for software security and then really reinforcing that, you know, the council is looking for you to have this as a organizational capability and be very mature. And you can't just, you know, have your QSA come in and throw them a couple of pen tests and a couple of outputs from tools and say, hey, look, we're doing the things we're supposed to. So I think they're doing a very good job of educating the community, taking a very wide stance in terms of who they include uh, in terms of gaining input for creating new standards. 
And so, for example, they talk about the importance of using industry standards and saying, hey, there isn't a one size approach that's going to work for every organization. But if you're using BSIM, if you're using, you know, one of the ISO standards or something, keep doing that because that might be the right thing for your business. But we're also going to look at this is an objective based assessment that says, hey, I want you to have these current capabilities. I'm not going to tell you how you have to do them, but I'm going to tell you what the guidance is I'm going to use for the QSA to look and demonstrate competence in these particular areas. And I just think they do a really good job. So from your experience, what was the most challenging part of PCI compliance when when at your prior role, you were really responsible for PCI compliance for the organization? What were some key challenges that the actual practitioners are facing out there? And that's just talking about one compliance requirement. What if you are facing multiple regulatory and compliance pressures? Are there things that people need to be thinking about or are there approaches that you'd recommend people consider? Yeah, so there's really kind of two parts there. One is the fact that, you know, the amount of compliance, it always multiplies. You know, it can be PCI, it could be HIPAA, it could be PII, but especially in this country where every state is coming out with their own regulations in terms of data privacy, it's a very, very complicated patchwork of, of regulations that every organization has to figure out for themselves and it has to be pragmatic. And I think that's, you know, a big part of it is that there has to be a strategy around how you manage the risk associated with compliance and it has to be driven from the top down. The other thing I think is very relevant kind of based on where we are from a calendar perspective is that um, very much like there's fatigue from, you know, COVID restrictions, there's actually compliance fatigue. I think that's something very real in organizations where, you know, the reality is, is you have to do certain things every day. Like you have to review logs, you have to monitor vulnerabilities. And I think for organizations, just like individuals, it's very hard to keep that level of discipline and self-awareness at all times and not feel like every once in a while you'd like to take a step back and take a breath, but that's exactly what we can't do because, um, you know, that's when, you know, sometimes the bad guys are able to take advantage of us. We have to be very vigilant, which is probably the the right way to say it. No, that's very well put. I do want to talk a little bit more about trends in security that we're seeing more and more. So simple example that comes to mind is as online and internet-based exploits became easier or more broadly available to attackers, we started seeing a significant rise in in online fraud and online exploits going on. And over time, I think technologists and companies have gotten better at protecting themselves and making sure that they're going through the right type of things like code review, pen testing, you know, and network assessments, et cetera, to really secure the infrastructure, also prevent fraud. I think fraud detection technologies have evolved as well. And we're going back to seeing more and more physical security issues rise up again. From your perspective, how have those trends played out? What do you see today and any predictions for how these these might look in the future? Yeah, so I, th- I think specifically around the area of kind of the convergence of cybersecurity and physical security. You know, as you mentioned in my intro, I actually own an electrical contracting company that focuses on access control, video surveillance, and, you know, pretty much hanging stuff off of the end of the grid, you know, with IoT. But um, one of the reasons I did, you know, that very specifically was that I think there's a convergence coming between cybersecurity and physical security. To me, a couple of attacks really stand out. You know, if you look at, you know, the Stuxnet attack where you actually had 
had malware impact the performance of centrifuges and ha- and have those you know kind of malfunction. You know, NotPetya had a devastating impact on the shipping container uh, company Maersk as well as other logistics providers where they just couldn't figure out where their cargo was, where their ships were. I mean, think about how hard it is to, to lose a cargo ship full of all these containers. But you know, malware really you know really hurt them from an operations perspective and a supply chain perspective for a lot of customers. And then if you look more recently as the at the attack on the water treatment facility in Florida, you know, that's where someone basically used a remotely exploitable code to basically manipulate, you know, sensors that added certain chemicals to a municipal water supply. Now, thankfully, there was other IoT devices that would have hopefully identified that too much of a particular chemical was in the water. But again, you know, they didn't have to physically break into the water treatment plant to have access to the infrastructure. And so I think from an organizational perspective, I think organizations really need to take a a hard look at converging the physical security and the cybersecurity teams to put them in exercises and training and and cross-training, probably more importantly, to make sure that they're able to identify these more sophisticated attacks that, you know, are coming at them from both the cyber and the physical side. The other part of that too, I think, is relevant. I think there's education happening now for companies to know how to authenticate a user or authenticate their end user. But we don't have the equivalent symmetric solution the other way around. How, as an end user, can I authenticate my company? So when a customer service rep calls me from my bank, I have no way to validate whether they're truly calling from a bank or whether they're a scammer calling me to do some sort of a social engineering attack because that process today just doesn't exist. The only way for me to do that would be hang up the phone and call the bank number directly from my phone or address book or my or the website and, and so on and so forth. And that's causing a lot of interesting issues now, too, with the whole vishing attacks, right? A common way for me to get someone's address would be to call up a company that I know you've maybe ordered something from and and pretend to be you and see if they will divulge some of your information. So that's another area I think is lacking. And I have I, my prediction for that would be that I think we're going to see some trends in improving that two-way authentication versus it being more one way from the company to the end user. I, th- I think you're right. I think the other thing, I think this is where there's an opportunity for blockchain and uh, the smart contracts to come into play. So I think if you look at something similar to what you were saying is, how do I know this came from that person? I think there's going to be situations in the near future where deep fake videos are going to potentially impact brand equity, reputation, maybe even influence financial markets because somebody, you know, shows a video that's fake that says, oh, somebody got hurt, you know, using a certain product or, you know, some bad event happened that didn't really happen. And we've seen, you know, episodes of this in the past, but I think the blockchain technology and smart contract technologies are great examples of if you're not sure if something really happened, being able to go back. And so I think there's going to be more and more of those like, hey, what's the what's the ultimate truth about where this originated from, who published it? And I think attribution is going to be a huge field in the future. It becomes even more important as, as misinformation and disinformation becomes more prevalent and more dangerous, I think, for organizations and individuals. Do you, do you agree with that? I, I agree. I, I think I think I agree. And I'm and that's why a lot of that blockchain technology is is so appealing to a lot of people. But then there's also the challenge of a lot of people don't understand how to necessarily secure it or even test it from an assurance perspective. And, and that's something I think we'll figure out as an industry over time. We're just not quite there yet. So it's still anything with new emerging technologies. I think this is a challenge we face. But I, but I think, I mean, look at the possibilities here are things like just publishing like proxy statements. Can't go out early because it could impact investors. But once it's out, everyone needs a copy of it. But I mean, right now, there's literally organizations that, you know, 
print it out, put it in an envelope and send it to people. And it's just, it's not cost effective or environmentally friendly or any of those other things. But, you know, something like that, that, that can be immortalized, that can be referenced by regulators as well as shareholders and stuff like that, I just think is a great opportunity for taking a new technology and using it in a new way, like publishing, you know, regulatorily mandated uh, publications like proxy statements. No, I agreed. Speaking of being environmentally environmentally friendly, you like you like what I did there. Yeah, good segue, Nabil. Yeah, <laughs> um, so smooth. I I know, I know. I try. We've mentioned in your intro that you are a scuba instructor and a captain of the U.S. Merchant Marines. And during our podcast, I always like to talk to people about their hobbies and personal interests and things they do outside of their uh, professional capacity. So there's clearly a lot of things with what you do professionally and what you do as a hobby on the side, especially when it comes to risk management. You know, so can you share with us a little bit about what parallels do you see between being a scuba instructor, being a captain and and risk management? So I think I think for both of them, I mean, I think all of us have something from an ESG perspective we're passionate about. And I think clean water, our oceans, all that other stuff is is super important. And so one of the things, and you know, one of my childhood heroes, for example, was Jacques Cousteau. I just thought his adventures were incredible. His boat was fantastic. And it's like, man, what an awesome job. I guess just go around the world and, you know, see cool stuff. But the reality is, is, um, you know, one of the reasons I became a scuba instructor, one of the reasons I'm a, I'm a merchant, uh, I'm a captain in the Merchant Marine is that people covet what they know. And so for so many people, they sit on the beach, they think, ah, oh, it's really pretty, but that's all they do. Maybe once a year on vacation. So I just thought it was extremely important to get people actually on the water, under the water, and really understand things like, you know, what plastics are doing to our oceans and, and stuff like that so that they can see like, hey, you know, something you just throw out of your car actually does make it into environments that we care about. But probably a risky classroom than the bottom of an ocean with somebody that has never been there before. But I think the risk management uh, that's taught by the professional agencies, I happen to be taught by Patty, but it's incredible. Like everything they do is about risk management. So, you know, the standards they have for teaching, how many students you can have per instructor, the burden being on the instructor to, you know, to determine whether it's safe to do certain things, the insurance I have to carry, all that stuff is designed to minimize risk to the students and staff. And it's incredible. Even how they handle violations of policy, there's a professional journal. If somebody does something wrong, they put it out there for everyone to learn from. I mean, you're not happy if you're going to you know, be the guy on the pages or the gal on the pages. But the reality is the fact that they say, hey, people are going to make mistakes, but it's important that you bring those back to the people that can help us figure out, hey, did we make a, a mistake in terms of how we trained you guys? It's an opportunity to educate everyone in the same scenario. And we have CPEs just like any profession does. But in every single training, there's a segment that's devoted to you know quality of the situation you make as an instructor. And I think it's almost the same for, you know, uh, being a captain of a vessel. I mean, the reality is, is when you take those souls out onto the ocean and you're responsible for them, I mean, you need to bring them back healthy and safe. It comes down to a couple of things. You know, what experiences do I bring to those situations based on the training I've had, based on the experience I've had on the water? And then what's the quality of the vessel and the equipment that I'm relying on to help me deal with those situations? And those are really the two things as a captain, the only two things you control, what your experience has been and are you prepared? for the situation. And other than that, there's nothing you can do. So I just think that those core concepts just resonate also with cybersecurity. How well prepared are you to do the job you've been asked to do as part of a team? And then how well have you prepared your organization to deal with a specific threat? Because I, I think that mindset, that, that prudent mindset of being a good steward for the people you're responsible for, I think just resonates with people in cybersecurity as well. 
So I'm very curious, Jeff, if you can share with me how you got started with scuba, because it's not something that's necessarily common. I know a few people who do go scuba diving, and I know a couple of people who are instructors like yourself, but take me back. You know, how did you get started? What made you, what made it so appealing to you? And what I want to really learn about is a specific experience that's very memorable to you and when, why? Okay. So the first kind of how, kind of why I want to be in scuba, I was always very comfortable in the water. My dad was in the Navy, so I always lived close to the ocean. So I've been in the water. I'm probably as comfortable in the water as I am outside. But um, when I went to college, I went to a military college and I said, hey, I really want to be a tip of the spear kind of guy. So the tip of the spear guys in the Navy are, are Navy SEALs. And so I said, hey, the better I am, the more well-rounded I am as an operator, the more valuable I could be to the potential teams that I serve. So in the back of my mind, I always knew, regardless of what the outcome of college was going to be or what my degree was going to be. To be. I really wanted to learn how to scuba dive. So that was kind of where the seed got planted. But then ultimately, I had planned a trip to Australia. And I said, there's no way I'm going halfway around the world, which I know for you is just going back home. There's no way I'm going halfway around the world and not scuba diving because you always hear about the Great Barrier Reef. So the reality is, is, um, you know, I went, I took some scuba classes. I dove in a horrible cold, cold quarry outside of Washington, D.C. that was miserable, horrible introduction to the sport, even though it's very good trading. And the reality is, is that ever since I've never looked back, pre-COVID, October of 2019, probably the most memorable scuba diving event I had was cage diving with great whites off of an island uh, called Guadalupe, uh, which is 200 miles uh, off the Baja coast of Mexico. And for my whole life, sharks have been my favorite animal. I just think everything about them is fascinating. I think the shark finning industry is horrible. But the reality is, is very much that that core for me is, you know, people covet what they know and people are so afraid of sharks and they're so intimidated by great whites. But, you know, spending three or four days in the water with them, you know, literally only a couple of feet from them. It's just, it's amazing. You realize how smart they are, how intelligent they are, what the social interactions look like. And um, I just think like everything else, don't be a afraid of stuff you don't understand. Just go learn as much as you can about it. It's probably a lot less intimidating than you expect. So how close did you get to the the great whites? Did they all come in and hit your cage or, or were you? Yeah. Yeah. So literally we had uh, one shark that they bring them in with baits uh, so that they come closer to the cages so you can, you know, uh, photograph them and stuff. But the reality is, is at one point, one of the sharks missed the bait and actually started chewing on the bars of the cage where literally you almost thought like shark teeth were going to start falling inside of a cage. But then you realize how small it is with four other people in there with you. And now everyone is bunched up in one corner trying to get as far away as they can with the other. And then you have people like me with my GoPros trying to get as close to the shark as possible because they realize it's a once in a lifetime experience. But literally within just a few feet of the cage uh, at most times. And it's incredible because everyone talks about their cold, dark eye. You know, it's like a piece of charcoal and it's really not. It's a very complex eye. But what's amazing is when they go buy a cage and there's three or four divers, they always lock on to one diver. And if you're that diver, you know, you know, because as they as they glide past you, that eye stays on you the whole time. But just incredible creatures, uh, the way they're countershaded and everything else, they're just, you know, millions of, of years of evolution is just something you have to marvel at. I mean, plenty of people are scared, but I think that they're just a fascinating creature and just, you know, horribly misunderstood. And if anyone wants to go scuba diving with them or any other shark, give me a call because I think it's really important for us to get out there and, and appreciate, you know, the importance of, of clean water and clean oceans. All right. So Jeff, shark trivia for you. Okay. How many teeth do sharks have at any given time? Oh God. It would probably depend on the species and their age and a whole bunch of other things, but a lot. Give, give, me, an, give me an approximate. Um, hundreds probably. 
It's actually thousands. A shark can apparently have 3,000 teeth. Oh. Uh, they apparently can lose 100 teeth daily. Really? Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a there's a great site down here uh, where we train people at. And uh, they have a lot of the prehistoric uh, megalodon teeth. And literally what we'll teach uh, new students to do is uh, we'll, we'll take them on little shark hunting adventures, which is pretty fun. It's almost like kids that are trick-or-treating for the first time or looking for Easter eggs or something like this. I mean, once you train their eyes on what to look for, just incredible. But we found megalodon teeth. We found uh, the tusk from, you know, prehistoric mammoths and, you know, horse teeth from prehistoric horses and everything else. But I mean, the ocean's amazing. I mean, you never know when you go out there what you're going to see. And it's just absolutely amazing to get out there and do it. I found so many people like, oh, I'm, I'm afraid or, oh, I hurt my ear sometimes. It's like, no, just go find a great instructor, you know, convince your better half to go do it with you. So you're more likely to stick with it. But, you know, just get out there and try it. It's, it's a wonderful world. All right. It's definitely on my list to try. So I'm going to have to come visit you for you to take me out one of these days once we get through this pandemic and whatnot. But it's on my list of, of something to do. I went snorkeling um, last year. Uh, sorry, not last year, 2019 in the Maldives. And I absolutely loved looking at the, the, they have a lot of reefs all around the islands and everything. That was beautiful. But I can't imagine how much more fun it would be to actually scuba and go a little deeper. I'm also not a good swimmer, so that's the that's the other challenge that I have. But I, the way I see it is if I'm underwater water with oxygen, then it doesn't matter how good of a swimmer I am as long as I can make my way around. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I've, I've taught uh, people that were um, in their 80s, and I've had people that were teenagers or students, and you don't have to be necessarily a strong swimmer to enjoy it. But the reality is, is just get a good, competent instructor from a, from a reputable agency, and they'll take you through all that. I mean, for me, there's nothing more gratifying than someone that, you know, transition from being a student to really just being immersed in the environment and looking around and being like, oh my God, did you see that really amazing giant stingray just come by? Or did you see my first shark underwater? And I think sharing that, I don't know at the end of my days what I'm really going to be thinking about, but I'm, I'm thinking that those experiences with people will just be a, a very important part of my life. But yeah, come on down. I'd love to, I'd love to certify you in a bill. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thank you for your time. This was fun and good catching up as always. I really appreciate you inviting me on your podcast today. Can't thank you enough for the time you spent with us. I look forward to seeing you soon. Take care. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.